You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, who doesn't love talking about money? Yeah, everyone, everyone comfortable talking about money? <laughs> I can see a lot of um, uncomfortable faces, you know, grabbing their wallets a bit tighter. Um, so Jeff has chosen a good week to go away, hasn't he? Uh, before we start, I just want to paint a bit of a picture for you about where Jesus is preaching this particular passage, this uh, particular parable, because uh, I really like the picture of, of what he's up to, where he's been. So let me just run you through quickly um, through a little introduction about where he is. So unless you've been asleep or away in the Maldives on a hammock through our series on Luke, you'll know by now that Jesus is well established in his ministry. The wisdom of his teaching and the miracles he's performed mean that everywhere he goes, an inevitable crowd of people apparently appearing from nowhere seem to appear. They want to hear Jesus. They want to see what he's doing. Some are there for good reasons. Some are there for bad reasons. We've got a mixture of those in the passage today. This occasion is no exception. Jesus is fresh out of having quite a difficult conversation with some Pharisees in their house, um, which is, isn't untypical for Jesus. And outside the house, a crowd of thousands turns up. A crowd so big that Luke actually makes mention of the fact that they're trampling on each other. That, to me, sounds like quite a significant crowd to gather while you're stood in a house. Imagine coming out of here and finding crowds of thousands gathered. I don't think I'm that good at preaching, to be honest, but um, maybe a crowd would gather out the the back. Um, I don't know about you, but I've often had this idealistic picture of a school assembly type situation when Jesus is is preaching, where everyone's sat cross-legged in rows in silence, just waiting for Jesus to speak and perhaps even politely putting up their hands when they've got a question. This situation is not one of those. Perhaps there were occasions where Jesus was in that sort of polite environment, but on this occasion I picture it something much busier, much louder, much more disorganised. There are probably hundreds of people there looking to get Jesus' attention and ask him their own profound and important questions. Amongst those hundreds of potential questions that were potentially either never heard by Jesus or certainly not recorded by Luke, we get this. Jesus, tell my brother to divide my inheritance with me. If you can imagine that, in your, if you've got children, in your children's best possible annoying voice. It's exactly what to me it sounds like. A guy stands up in the middle of this crowd, his voice is heard over everybody else's. Jesus, tell my brother to divide my inheritance with me. How on earth did this slip through the net? Of all the questions that could have been asked, all the profound and important questions that were there, this is the one that was recorded. Imagine Jeff up here, midway through preaching a cracking sermon, probably quoting some third century theologian, maybe maybe Lucian of Antioch, or if he's feeling a bit more modern, something by C.S. Lewis. And one of you stands up and tells Jeff to instruct your sibling to split their inheritance with you. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? I mean, we could try it now. I won't make any judgments. I'd expect the best reaction to that situation would probably be 
from me to politely ask them to sit down very calmly and perhaps we could discuss it after the service or at a more appropriate occasion. Worst case scenario, I'd get the bouncers, Matt and Nick, (laughs) to escort them off the premises. But Jesus is better than me. Ever the master of defying expectations, in front of a huge crowd, Jesus decides to engage with this man, but not in the way that he would have expected, and certainly not in the way that he would have wanted. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Jesus often engages with us in a way that we do not expect, and in a way that we do not want. And this man got exactly that. Now, it wasn't uncommon at the time that rabbis would make judgments on this sort of thing. So people would often follow them and ask them these sort of questions. So seeing Jesus as a rabbi, this man was probably hoping that Jesus would make a simple judgment based on his understanding of Jewish law, which would secure this man a tasty sum of money from his brother. And if it hadn't gone his way, I suspect he probably would have moved on to the next rabbi until he found one that eventually did confirm that he was owed a tasty sum of money by his brother. Unfortunately for this man, though, Jesus doesn't just forego making a judgment on the man's inheritance. He sees this man's heart and his true motivations and offers him a stern rebuke. Now, at this point, I just want to make a bit of a sideline. Bear with me. Just as an aside, because I think it is an important point to make, and I don't often get a chance to make them, Jesus deliberately decides to avoid getting caught up in this petty argument or offering advice on a small point of law. Jesus would have known the law of primogeniture, which covers inheritance between siblings. He was well-versed on the law, more than anyone else that's ever existed. So he could easily have made a correct judgment. It wouldn't have been difficult for him. Instead, his concern was with the man's heart and his eternal soul. So when offering advice to people, Christian or not, we would be wise to do the same thing as Jesus. Don't be too quick to offer practical advice at the cost of addressing people's heart. Of course, you don't have Jesus' insight, but you do have the Holy Spirit, you do have prayer, and you do have the Bible. Make use of those incredible gifts when you're asked to intervene in these sorts of disputes. It's important that we do that, or you'll get caught up in the nitty-gritty, give people the correct advice at the cost of their soul. Don't do that. Back to Jesus' response, though. In a way that only Jesus could do, he composed his rebuke in a way that spoke to this man, who eventually sat down, to the crowd that was gathered in front of him, and perhaps most importantly, to us as well. Isn't that remarkable? I think Nick made a point yesterday that if you design the Bible cleverly, you could never design these sorts of things. It's remarkable. So, Bearing in mind that this man's father had probably just died very recently, perhaps in the last few days, which is why he was looking for his inheritance. And that that point passed me by originally. I didn't even consider that this this man's dad had probably died, and that was why he had an inheritance. In spite of that, Jesus still offers this man a harsh rebuke. He tells him this difficult parable, and it challenges him. So this is probably quite a good measure of exactly how important Jesus thought this addressing this sin was. He rebuked a man whose father just died. What was his sin then? I hear you all eager, eagerly cry in the crowd. Well, 
the centre of this man's question was covetousness and greed. We don't know the exact circumstances of inheritance. We're not told that much. We don't know whether he received nothing, whether he received less than his fair share, or perhaps even if he received more than his fair share. And to be honest, that's not the important point. What we do know, though, is he interrupts Jesus and makes a demand of him. This isn't even a question. He doesn't ask him what is right. He tells him what is right and asks him to use his authority to execute his own sinful desire. He wants his inheritance and he'll do anything he can to get it, including hurting his own family because his brother's involved. Perhaps he's got a mother as well. And going against the will of his deceased father. This man did not care. He regarded his inheritance above any of those people around us. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And for his own gain, this man was seeking the very opposite of that. He was potentially a Jewish man. He was asking for guidance from a rabbi. I can only assume that he's Jewish. He should have known this. He should have known this better than even we do. But he went against it. To address this, Jesus goes away from speaking to the man individually and tells a parable about a rich fool to his disciples and the crowd surrounding him and us now. Now, without reading it all again, in summary, this parable tells the tale of an already wealthy man who has an exceptionally good harvest. So good, in fact, that he is complaining, like a little child, about not having enough room to store all his excess. And the only possible solution to this terrible problem that he has is to build bigger barns. What an awful predicament he's in. He's got so much, he can't even fit it in his barns. Terrible, terrible situation. All these supplies and his wealth will keep him fat and comfortable until he dies at a nice age, happy and content that he's had a great life. Sounds good, doesn't it? This man's ideal life in 30-something AD is the dream life of our society now. It's what everyone works towards. Get rich, take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. The end. Put on some Frank Sinatra my way at the funeral and his life is entirely complete. He's lived the dream of the UK in 2019. Except it isn't. Listen to the end of the parable. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. What did this man do wrong then to deserve such a heavy rebuke? And what does it mean to be rich towards God? Well, that, I'm hoping, is what I'm going to talk about today. You'll be pleased to know that although wealth is often spoken about as a challenging area for Christians, the rich man's wealth, in this case, isn't actually the problem. Until he starts building bigger warehouses, Jesus makes no judgment on the man's wealth. Perhaps he would have done on a different occasion, but on this occasion he doesn't. It's what he chooses to do with that wealth that is the problem. God has given this man a gift. 
It's particularly of note that he worked as a farmer. The very crop that he grew was dependent on the ground, on the weather, on things that he couldn't control. And yet, here he is, claiming full glory for his wonderful crop, giving no glory to God and giving nothing back to God's kingdom. So then, as much as this parable is about money, I believe it is equally applicable to other gifts too like spiritual gifts, like our intellects, our practical skills, our time, our homes, our physical ability, and a million other things that God can bless us each with. Not wishing to avoid the obvious, though, or shirk the difficult responsibility, I do want to talk about money before I move on to the other things. Stick with me, though. I promise it's not going to be too painful And I'm not going to be asking for your bank statements before you leave the building today. Keeping it close to home, though, take a quick look at the building around you. This church, alongside many others, was built by a lady of significant wealth. Probably not unlike the rich man in the parable. She was born into wealth and continued to have a lot of wealth. This lady was called Selina, the Countess of Huntington. Now, in spite of her wealth, her life was not an easy one. I'm going to summarise it a bit, so apologies to Selina. She deserves a bit longer summary than this. But she suffered from ill health, was widowed at 39, and was outlived by only one of her seven children. Under those circumstances, at the time she was living, she had a good reason to be the sort of rich person who stored up their money and coasted to death as comfortably as they could. But, unlike the rich man in the parable, she did not. She chose to give all her service, all of herself, to the service and proclamation of the gospel. She chose to give her money to build this church. The same church where I was saved. The same church where you might have been saved too. Now, of course, I'm not saying that this church is solely responsible for my conversion. I wouldn't dare or that I wouldn't have been saved without it. I will leave Jeff to preach on predestination and Calvinism when he comes back. Um, That'll be a little treat from his holiday trip away. But her wealth and and her use of that wealth has undoubtedly built God's kingdom in practical ways and spiritual ways. If you sit here today in this church, particularly if you're a member, you can't help but be affected by the wealth of a lady that lived a long, long time ago. You are benefiting from the seeds that she sowed a long time ago. Even now, all of those who contribute to this this church have played a part in that legacy and furthering God's kingdom. Whether you have a little or a lot, or whether you build churches or just pay for one shoe bag to go to Sierra Leone, it's important to recognise that your financial generosity is important. God doesn't need your money. He literally makes gold and diamonds out of rocks. Who do you think the money comes from? God makes those things. He doesn't need us to provide money. Absolutely not. But he does want us to have generous hearts. Churches are run. The gospel is spread. The hungry are fed. I didn't intend that to rhyme. And the naked are clothed. 
all off the back of money like people, in, people like you and me give. And it's important that we do give that money. Now, take Gilgal as an example. For a number of years now, we have financially supported Gilgal. And our support for them, I would hope, goes a lot longer than, a lot, a lot wider than financial support um, in prayer, in building relationships. And that is extremely important. But you can't help but get away from the fact that we have contributed a lot financially to Gilgal. What's the result of that? Well, if you've been at the nights where we've discussed Gilgal, you'll know that we've reopened a theological college, which has trained probably over 100 students now to go and be pastors of their own churches. We've built kitchens. We've reopened another wing of Gilgal. We've paid cooks. We've paid teachers. We've done a remarkable amount with money. And what's more remarkable about that is much like Selena, the Countess of Huntington, our contribution in that area will have effects long after we're gone. Those people that are evangelised, as Andrew's spoken about, there are countries where they've never heard the gospel before, ever, not a single word of it. And that is where these students are going. That is the impact that your money is having. And just while we're on the topic of Gilgal, when we're talking generosity, these people have nothing, and yet they are generous. For anyone that's been blessed enough to go out there, they will know that everywhere you go, you get fed, you get watered, and often you'll get a gift. Now, these people have nothing, and yet their hospitality, their generosity to those that visit is beyond compare. It's remarkable. So it's not just us as the rich Western church propping them up. It's them propping us up. They have gifts that we could not possibly dream of, that we do not necessarily have in this church or certainly could not express in the same way. And we're allowed to be part of that. That is remarkable. And finances is a part of that. To finish talking about money, though, because I don't want to bang on about money, and before I get any eggs thrown at me, all I ask of you is this. Make God part of your finances. Pray about them regularly and seek God's wisdom on how you spend money. Don't let the opportunity for financial generosity pass you by. And certainly don't get caught out as a rich fool. Now I think it's important that as a person preaching to you, you're made aware that I'm not just the person telling you to do this. I'm the person that's affected by the message as well. I will openly admit to you that for a long time, Hannah and I had more money than really we were sensibly doing things with. I can admit that to you. Not anymore. We've got a lot less money than we had before. (laughs) But how easy is it to just coast along thinking that you've got just enough money to survive and you're doing quite well. Suddenly, a bit of that money goes away because you have a child and you only have one person working in the household. And funnily enough, you don't end up on the street. You make do with what you had. What did you do with the excess? Where did it go? What it went on was meals out. It went on holidays. It went on the house, some of which are important. I'm not saying that holidays aren't important. I'm not saying that free time is not important. I'm not saying that doing up a house isn't important. But it's important to regularly check your finances. You can easily slip by year after year thinking that you have just enough money to live, when in actual fact you have more than enough money to live. Make God part of your finances. Pray about them regularly 
and seek God's wisdom on how you spend your money. Moving away from money then, you'll be pleased to hear, although it may make a little reappearance later. How can we apply this passage in a more general way? Well, God has made each one of us in his image, uniquely handcrafted, designed with gifts and assets and abilities to use for his glory. All of that is your wealth. You don't need money to be wealthy. And we are called to spend a life, we are called to a life spending that wealth on God's kingdom, serving the poor, feeding the hungry, preaching the gospel, praying for people, loving the weak and lost and glorifying God. And just for you catechism fans and enjoying him forever. Um, Again, you can see the results of this in our own church. The worship team are all gifted musicians who choose to dedicate those skills to lead worship in church. They could keep those to themselves. They could make money out of them, and they do privately. But they also spend their time and their efforts building up the worship in this church. There is a huge value in that. We'd definitely be a lot quieter and a lot more out of tune without them. You would, I wouldn't. I would. <laughs> Jeff is one of the most skilled theologians that I know. I can say that because he's not here and because I haven't met many theologians. <laughs> no, he is generally very good. And he chooses to use that skill and many others to lead this church. All the children's workers, many of whom are out the back now, who are blessed with patience and the ability to herd cats and teach our children, where would our children be without them? They'd know a lot less about God than they do now. That is an invaluable work. That is a skill they have. They dedicate to the Lord. Sarah, sorry to pick on you while you're in the room, but we heard last week, if you were here, Sarah's testimony about her healing of her neighbour. That is a gift from God. That prayer ministry is a gift from God, which Sarah, or anyone else that has it, can choose to withhold and use for their own benefit, or they can choose to pray for their neighbour and see healing and see lives saved. You have a choice with those skills about what you do with them, and it's important that you dedicate those to serving the Lord. Andrew, as we heard, he's out of the room now, so I can be nice to him as well. He has a passion and a heart and a skill for um, going out on um, mission. I forgot the word. I was going to say ministry. That's not the right word. On mission. He could choose to stay and work here. He's gifted as a carpenter as well. For any of those that have had work done by Andrew, you know how good he is. He is gifted with his hands at making things beautifully. He's also gifted with being a, a, a missionary. A minister, a missionary. And he's choosing to go and do that at the cost of his other skills because that is where he believes he can best serve God. All of you who pray for one another, everyone on serving teams, people who practice hospitality and people who work for the Lord in ways that we might never know. I could go on and on because you're all great and you all have a wealth that you spend for God. But I would encourage you to look for more ways to spend yourself for him. Don't get complacent or withhold that which God has given you, no matter your age or ability. 
because neither of those should be obstacles to you. 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11 says this. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. That is our biblical obligation. Use the skills God has provided you for God. We can keep these gifts for our own pleasure and sense of security, storing them up in earthly barns we build, whether they be physical or otherwise, or we can offer ourselves as Christ did, sacrificially, emptying ourselves and our resources for his use, and in turn find ourselves filled up to completion with all the inheritance of his kingdom. Doesn't that sound better? Doesn't being filled up with God's kingdom sound better than having a full bank account or a barn full of perishable wheat? That's another thing about the wise man. How he thought he would get to old age on a bit of old wheat, I'll never know. Um, That's why he's a foolish rich man, I suppose. But don't depend on things that will perish. Depend on the inheritance of God's kingdom. Lastly, then, on the point of our inheritance, we must not lose sight of the fact that all of our efforts on this earth and our richness towards God are for eternal heavenly wealth, not for an earthly wealth. I'm not a televangelist. I am not going to stand here and tell you that if you give me £10 now, in a week or so's time, £100 will appear in your postbox. That is simply not God's kingdom. That isn't how it works. The rich man made the mistake of building his kingdom on earth, forgetting that there was an eternal heavenly kingdom where he was most certainly not king and where his wealth and status would mean nothing. What does a barn full of wheat mean compared to the man who created it? Nothing. He may have had it all on earth, but he had nothing in heaven because he invested nothing in God, nothing in God's people, nothing in God's kingdom. He was afraid that he wouldn't have enough on this earth when he should have been afraid that he would have nothing in heaven. Reading ahead just a few verses in Luke, Jesus addresses this point with his disciples. He says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this isn't my point. But I think it is too good to miss. Let me just read you the start of that again. For your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. He is pleased to give you the kingdom. Isn't that exciting? That God is the creator of the universe, is pleased to give you something that he created. What entitles us to the kingdom? 
Nothing. Nothing. If you want a model for generosity, that seems like a good place to start. We might be worried about giving away some money or our time or our skills, but God is willing to give you everything. The disciples didn't know this or recognise this at the time, but he was willing to give us his son. That's incredible, isn't it? That is generosity beyond anything that foolish rich man could have possibly understood. Back on point, though, as I draw this near to an end. God does not promise that our effort in this life will see an earthly reward, although sometimes you might. If you work hard, it is appropriate that you're paid for that work. But sometimes you won't be. Sometimes you will work hard and see no result from it. No one will thank you. No one will pay you. No one will recognise you. Do it anyway if it's for God's kingdom. And if it's not, stop doing it. Your role on this earth is not to be recognised by the earth, not to be rewarded with riches, with status. If you are, use that wisely. Do not be the rich fool. The promise that you need to hold on to and the promise that I hope will draw you away from the pitfalls of the rich man and forward into greater and greater generosity, which is, if I haven't mentioned already, the opposite of greed is that God is more generous than you can ever imagine. More generous than you can ever imagine. Invest in him wisely and his kingdom, and you will be rewarded in heaven. You will be rewarded with a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Do not invest in earthly wealth. Invest in heavenly wealth. Amen.